0: Hey everyone, this podcast is brought to you by Duke University's Eritre Initiative. This summer, from July 9th to the 14th, they're going to be hosting the High School Summer Seminar on Ethics, Philosophy, and Religion on Duke's campus in Durham, North Carolina. This seminar will prepare high school students with a roadmap for approaching those same subjects in college. Using texts from literature, philosophy, and theology, the seminar will examine such topics as the meaning of virtue, the substance of human nature, the question of human flourishing, the metaphysics of reality, and the nature of truth. Students will also discuss the idea's natural law, the relationship between philosophy and theology, and the relationship between science and religion. This seminar is taught by several Duke University instructors and professors, and is open to current high school students entering their junior or senior years. There is no fee associated with applying or attending, and those admitted will be housed in the Duke dormitories and provided with meal cards. Students interested in applying should email johnrose at john.rose at duke.edu. That's j-o-h-n dot r-o-s-e at duke.edu. Applications will be considered on a rolling basis until April 26, 2019. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I am joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi, Tim, welcome back.
1: Hey, thanks. Thank Good to be
0: back. So we are here to answer your questions, listener questions about John Le Carre's spy novel, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, which we finished discussing last week. As always, you may want to listen to that first because there will be, or at least finish reading because there will be spoilers in this episode (laughs) Um, if you're worried about such things. I don't know why you're listening to the Q&A episode if if you're worried about spoilers. Uh, But uh, let's dive right in. We've got lots of questions here. Um, lots of great questions on the Facebook page that we received. Um, don't forget, you can always follow us on Facebook at Close Reads Podcast. And then we have the Instagram page and we're on Twitter at Close Reads Pods. And if you ever want to email us, you can email us at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. And of course, the website is closereadspods.com. So there's lots of ways to get in touch with us. Uh, Before we dive into the questions, I'll remind you that on April 5th, that week, we are going to start our conversation of Little Britches, and Adam Andrews is going to be our guest joining me and Heidi, and then after that, here on the flagship show, we're going to be discussing Sense and Sensibility, and that's going to be Heidi and I with special guest Karen Swallow Pryor. So we are excited about that. Make sure you tune into the email, the website, or the social media pages to get the exact reading schedules for that, uh, if you're interested. And those will get posted soon. We will be taking off next week, so we need to just kind of recalibrate. And we've got so much going on between all of us. And I think there's travel, and you're going on vacation, right? I am. I'm going to be
1: very, very busy <laughs> on a uh, sailing trip to the British Virgin Islands. So oh, nice. I'm. Wait. I Are think. you serious? I am serious. And I I love y'all, but I don't want to record a podcast <laughs> down there. And I'm not even sure we're going to have internet on our little vacation island paradise. So,
0: <laughs> so Tim, you wanted to do the show without or We could do yeah. awesome it. <laughs>
2: I would be full of such envy that I don't know that I could go on with the show. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's what I was thinking. So, uh, we're going to take next week off. We will still have um, the Daily Poem and... Um, we will be carrying on with The Tempest next on the Plays the Thing coming up here soon. And then Tim will be diving into Othello. So we'll get a Plays the Thing schedule out as well. But in the meantime, there definitely will be other shows still being posted. Um, all right, let's dive into some questions. You guys ready? Ready. ready. So this is from Christy. She asks, oh, I guess this is a good place to start. It's good a place to start as any right at the end. Is there a symbolic sin- significance to the fact that lemus and liz die literally at the berlin wall both the spy and the everyman the communist jew and secularist from britain die at the dividing line of east and west with both sides looking on what do you think so is there symbolic significance to this fact tim i'm gonna let you that one first because i'm sure you're just chomping at the bit
2: yes there is symbolic significance i mean. It's the dividing line between these two great ideologies that are crushing Lemus, crushing Liz, crush Fiedler, even though Fiedler is kind of like on one side of the wall, metaphorically speaking. Um, Yeah, I think it's absolutely significant that they kind of like die actually on the border. Lemus gets shot on the border, not, you know, like defending his own ideological territory. He doesn't really have one anymore. Um, yeah, I think it's the, it's the place it's the place they have to die symbolically
0: so They couldn't have died anywhere else to you to make right, the, in the story right. have the same power Heidi, do you yeah. agree with that?
1: I totally agree with that I think, that, I, I think even Christy said it in her uh, question, it's a great question and embedded within it is the exact reason that Tim just said
0: hmm. So I have a side note story about the Berlin Wall So you know my grandmother was German She was in Berlin or Potsdam during World War II or thereabouts. And she actually had a piece of the Berlin Wall. No way. She gave it to my dad. So my dad in his desk for years after the wall fell for years, had a chunk of rock from the Berlin Wall. Wow. And he had a secretary. This is in the early days of Cersei who sold his desk when he was out of town to get him and (sighs) the piece of the Berlin Wall went with it.
2: Oh,
1: what? So,
0: he was not happy about that.
1: That's terrible.
0: So, you know, if you ever find an old desk with a piece of the Berlin Wall in it, (laughs) it belongs to Andrew Kern.
1: (laughs) (sighs) Wow. Wow. That's that's really sad. So, just to add
0: a tragedy onto a tragedy here. Um, all right, let's move on to the next question. Right. Bethany Cohen asks, is Fiedler a hero?
2: I saw this question and I was like, man, I'm glad that Hardy gets to answer this one first. <laughs> that, that was good.
0: <laughs> I loved it. Terry, <laughs> you, <laughs> you, I just want to note that you thumbs up this question on the thread. So maybe I should let you answer it.
2: I will not put that on.
1: <laughs> I thought uh, that was pretty... That, that's worthy of a slow clap, that transition there, Tim.
0: Um, <laughs> We'll let Heidi answer first. I, yes. It's her turn.
1: <laughs> it's my turn. I will field this Fiedler question. I do not think that Fiedler is a hero, no. But I think that, uh, that Lickory did a magnificent job humanizing a villain and cr- making him a, a human to all of us. As you are reading it, slowly we kind of go from this hatred and disgust. He represents this ideology that's foreign and distasteful to us. And then even when he admits that he would bomb and he would kill women and children, like he admits this, in the name of his ideolo- ideology, by the end of this novel, we have utmost sympathy and maybe even some liking for this character. I'd put that down to craft on the part of Lake Ray I do not think he is a hero but I think he's sympathetic and human.
0: Hmm. Do you do you um, so should we get into a big definition of what a hero is?
1: I know. Well, I was going to say if for we have talked about this so often on with somehow the three of us end up with these Uh, these novels with ambiguous heroes, right? Are they heroes? Are they anti-heroes? Is it, you know, the whiskey priest, Lemus, all that, like we have these Mm -hmm. conversations in novel after novel after novel. And I think that that's one of the great achievements of the 20th and 21st century novel is this question that keeps coming up. What is a hero? What does it mean to be a good man? Can a great man be a good man? You know, all of these things. And of course, I'm including women in that. I'm using that in a generic sense. So that, I think we'll just continue to have this
0: Tim, do you agree? And I you do agree. Question.
2: I come I on, do man. agree. Disagree with her. I know, come no, on. No, I there'll <laughs> be opportunities, but I totally agree with like the assessment of Fiedler and and I, I kind of want to like derail us and start talking about, you know, what are heroes because the March Madness bracket at Circe is up. Right. And I've already had a couple of conversations with friends of mine who are great literary people about what a hero is. But maybe later in this podcast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) David, is Fiedler a hero? No. What do you think? Yeah. (laughs) But do you have
2: sympathy with him? Like Heidi said, David, do you have sympathy with him? Yeah, but what's
0: that got to do with anything?
1: Right. That's kind of...
0: I mean, yeah no i mean i'm being
1: no
2: alert. i think I think, I think that it does have no, i know to you are it. i
1: know you're being facetious but i'm answering it at face value because i think that's a good question sympathy and liking a character even a main character does not i mean you can have sympathy
0: the for definition. the devil in the in the yes in in um milton right right like, yeah that doesn't make him the hero right
1: Although that has been debated for oh, centuries, I know, I know. but it's... I'm with you. I don't think he is. He's not. Well, I'm
0: just saying that that inherently yeah. doesn't at least. Right. Agreed. Like does, and the question, I mean, so on the one hand, there's the question, is he a hero? You can define that any number of ways. I mean, when I was in school, I often saw that being defined by scholars just as the, essentially the protagonist, protagonist. who drives the action of the story, the one with the most agency. Then you have it kind of in a moral sense. Like, is it the person who is, Upon whom the story sort of rests, the moral action of the story, and then there's also the sense that people who are not generally either of those things can do things that are heroic, right? But if someone does, it mean that because someone does something heroic, that they are a hero, and that's where the sort of the sort of definition comes down to. I've never personally even thought about the concept of a hero being someone who you empathize with or sympathize with, right? Mm-hmm. I've never thought of that. Is that is that a for you, Tim, is that a connection point that you make that that the hero is to for someone to be a hero? There has to be a degree of sympathy.
2: Ooh, golly! Uh, or you can wow. respond to anything I just I said. No,
1: I'm putting my feet up <laughs> on my desk right now, <laughs> settling in.
2: <laughs> I want to say. I want to say yes but I'm going to say no because okay I think a one of the heroes of the divine comedy is Beatrice I have like I don't know if sympathy is the right word I have no, she is not a character that you can have any sort of empathy for because she's not real she's she's this kind of like ideal that has like left the human realm and ha- almost has no empathetic slash sympathetic characteristics. She's just like the dispenser of knowledge. Can you hear like some frustration with like that vision of Beatrice? I just don't care for. Yeah, Beatrice right. is so now. Is... You just... careful. You're gonna well, a I, I, no, in no, I'm standing by it. Or... I mean, like the Divine Comedy is magisterial. I think that aspect of Either the medieval life world or of Dante's book, I do not think are successful.
0: Hmm. I feel like that's a, you just raised a question that we don't, we're not here to answer on this particular Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right.
2: I don't know why. Why did I do this?
1: You're talking about sympathy. Should you have sympathy? Does the hero require the reader sympathy?
2: Yeah. Let's talk about something different now. It's too it's, <laughs> seriously. Like, I would like. <laughs> well, I, I, mean, I think it's an interesting podcast. It, I,
0: I was, I was, um, I mean, Bethany, I don't, I'm not criticizing you when I say this. I was surprised at the question in the first place because it never would have occurred to me that Fiedler was a hero. Like, did he, I'm trying to even think of, did he do something heroic? Because he's kind of just a pawn, isn't he?
1: Right. But he, when given the opportunity to place the full blame on Lemus, he stands up for him. And that is an act of moral courage. So is there a difference
0: between doing something that's noble or courageous and being a hero? Yes. yes.
1: Okay. So specifically in a literary sense, right? There's right.
0: Right. 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 Yeah.
1: It is the, the hero in a work of literature Is different from multiple characters doing heroic acts, like in the Iliad. Achilles is the hero, but Hector is heroic, right? So that is there's a difference. Like we're talking about it in two different senses. There's the moral sense of heroic of heroism and and nobility, and then there's also the technical sense of what does it take to be a hero in the context of a work of literature. Mm -hmm. And so, if we're sticking with that second one. Fiedler is not a hero. If we're asking the question, does he do something heroic? I think he does something very heroic in that in in that trial scene. Hmm.
0: Okay, yeah, I see that. I buy that. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Catherine asks. Cath- Catherine's. Uh, I like the little icons next to people's. I things. know. <laughs> like, like Catherine and Christy both have the little coffee with the steam coming out of it, I think it was a conversation starter.
2: Yep. (laughs) By the way, does that mean that this particular post was a conversation starter or this person is a conversation starter? I I think it means the
0: person. Yes. It says, Catherine is
1: specifically creating
0: meaningful discussions with their posts. So congratulations to Catherine and Chris. Okay, so let's try to have a meaningful conversation now. So (laughs) Catherine says, those spy novels and mysteries slash detective fiction so the categories she's creating, there are spy novels, and then on the other side, mysteries and detective fiction, seem to have much in common. And they also seem to be quite distinct from each other. If you agree with this idea, what are some of the qualities that they share and what distinguishes them, aside from the obvious spy or detective character at the center?
1: I want you to answer this question, <laughs> yeah, no David. Doubt. David, I'm <laughs> handing this. I'm so glad you agreed to answer this question.
0: How did I do that? <laughs> um, I, guess, I guess it is my turn. Um, yeah. Well, so... Um, spy novels have a spy and detective novels have a detective. <laughs> you are blowing my mind right now. Um, and actually, there are not a few examples of crossover in those two areas. Um, Eric Ambler's stuff in particular doesn't technically have a spy uh, because they are almost always regular business people or regular people who get caught up in the world of international espionage and they don't have a true spy protagonist. Um, But I think that generally speaking um, that distinction um, aside from um, the scope of the story. Well, okay. So the first thing I think is generally there's a scope distinction, like the scope of the story, the spy stuff is generally meant to be somehow. um, It would have greater impact. The results of the story are going to have greater sort of world or international impact. Oh yeah. Most often crime stories, detective stories, generally are this is a very specific crime often in a very specific place done to very specific people. So many of like, for example, you know, Sherlock Holmes or the Ross McDonald novels with Lou Archer as the detective, th- there's a specific crime happens to specific people. They bring in the detective or the detective gets roped into solving that specific crime done to specific people in a specific place. Spy novels often they're bigger in scope. It's things that are going to impact some sort of uh, world order and even if we take world order to be sort of a loose term um that's a, so that's that's one big distinction that then that distinction kind of leads into this other distinction in that i think that what's happening with a detective novel is this this sort of the, the goal or the sort of implicit theme at the heart of the story is the setting a setting to order like bringing things into right order. There's been something that has been done or some crime that has been committed and that our protagonist or our detective or whoever it is, is essentially at work to try to resolve that disorder. Um, Sometimes the best stories do that in a very complicated fashion, often because the detective himself or herself is not uh, rightly ordered internally. And so you get some sort of literary irony in that. Whereas in a spy novel, I don't think that there is often a um, sort of moral putting to order um, that, is, that is being attempted. I think, in fact, often spy novels are commenting on the impossibility of that given the themes and motifs that work in a spy novel. I think we see that here, that often that sort of, that sort of goal is not possible, that when nations of this, of this sort of caliber and strength are at war with one another and people are surreptitiously going about trying to defeat one another under the cover of darkness that it necessarily demands sort of um, questionable behavior. And so often the question is less, how do we resolve this disorder? And it's more, it's more a question of what happens to people who dive into a world that is deeply disordered inherently. Um, So I think they're kind of after different things. So those are two things that immediately
2: come to mind for me. Was that the subject of a master's thesis for you? No.
1: <laughs> Maybe it should be. That was excellent, excellent. I wrote, I wrote I wrote down that that mystery stories detective fiction is really inherently a comedy. It's like a fairy tale. They all have a happy ending. Whereas my mm. novels don't always. Oh, rarely, like, that would be the very worst detective story ever. Nobody would ever read it if they didn't find out who the murderer was.
2: Yeah, that, yeah, yeah.
1: That's a terrible story. It doesn't fit the form. So, but at the end of mm-hmm. a spy novel, you can you can leave a certain degree of of ambiguity and tragedy uh, at the end, as it does here in this novel.
0: One of the reasons that spy novels became as popular as they did uh, between World War II and on, you know, and say the end of the Cold War especially, is that there was this specter of, well, nuclear war. And so there was this hope that there were people, that there were spies that were doing the dirty work so people could sleep safely at night. And it was sort of this encouraging concept, even as it was understood that the world itself was so deeply divided. like People were living in the midst of that and in in that fear. And so I think that then that's one of the reasons why spy novels like John le Carré and Frederick Forsyth and a number of other people who became Lynn Dighton. There's a whole bunch of spy spy novelists who became really popular during that period because there was this recognition of of what you're saying, of this disorder. Um, And they were grappling with that without saying that there is a way to tie that up. Because I think people lived knowing that there wasn't going to be resolved easily. Like you don't just easily resolve the fact that someone could drop a nuclear bomb on you at any time. That's right. not something that you just kind of like can put in a bow and wrap up at the end.
1: Right. But your entire job as a spy is to lie, whereas the detective is a truth finder outer. Right. Yeah. That was a technical yeah. term. So that's that's what they do. So... But they do have a lot of overlap in the content of a spy novel and detective novel. A lot, you know, there's murders, there's death, there's figuring out who caused stuff, things like that.
0: Yeah, there's, and I think tonally, you know, that's tonally, and Um, even in the way that stylistically, recurring characters and archetypes and things like that. Yeah, they're like um, maybe not the same species. (laughs) They're not the same genre, but they're um, kind of brother and sister genres.
1: Well, and most of both kind of deal with the idea of justice in the human condition
0: as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So
1: that's a unifying yeah. point between them. Yep.
0: Yep. Tim, do you want to add to this?
2: None. Okay. None adding.
0: All right. You're up <laughs> first on this one. I'm ready. Kara. Kara wants to know, do you think Mont ordered Lemus and Liz to be shot or did they truly not make it over the wall in the time that was given them?
2: I don't think he ordered them to be shot. And... and- I think the reason, the reason for that claim is I think La Carre would have told us. Not positive about that, but I think he would have told us. And even if you find that argument, dear listener, uh, flimsy, <laughs> I, I appeal to the fact that Munt I think would have enough of a conscience. That he would not order the execution of the man who just saved his life. Oh, you are. Especially if he was, he, I think he has reason to be confident that it won't, he won't be caught. Munt won't be caught. Does that make sense? Yeah.
1: I, so this is, this is Tim and I's first fight. You're about oh to my gosh. observe this. So, um, so I absolutely think that Munt planned it with George Smiley, and I think no. they, yes. And I think that Liz was supposed to be the victim, and that Lemus was supposed to make it over the wall and come in from the cold. She's too much of a liability, and she was a Jew. I don't think he would have ever let her go. I think that it was planned the whole time, and I think that that's what Lemus know. That's why he goes back down is because he realizes that she was always going to be a sacrificial victim and he couldn't live with that. And so he climbed back down and died with her.
0: You think that, why do you think Smiley was involved in it?
1: Because he was right over the wall saying, where's the girl? So I think he was confirming that she was dead.
0: So my only response
2: to that, well, go ahead, Tim. Now I'm like, I'm just rethinking the whole end of the book, Heidi. It's that's like, so funny because like we talked about it last plausible. week.
1: That's, that's my interpretation of the end. I think that that's his final, that's the only way he comes in from the cold is because he's up on, he could have got he's on the dividing line between the East and the West, right? Exactly yeah. what we talked about earlier. He's on that dividing line and he realizes that no matter where he goes, he's contributing to not only a flawed but a fatally flawed system and now he's part of it and so his only way of coming into the cold coming in from the cold is to die with her so i think that both sides were in on it the whole time and i and here's my justification for that is because in the first chapter they you there's a girl who's with what's his, what's the other guy's name the guy who died in the front in the first chapter I wish I knew these things off the top of my head. Um, the guy that they're waiting for.
2: Oh, in the very the first car, page. Car. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: So they're waiting for him and he has a woman, a mistress mm-hmm. and she dies. Mm-hmm. I think that's because she knew too much and he like reiterates that over and over. So the only purpose that that serves in a literary sense is to, is to show that women who are attached to spies always know too much and they always die. They're collateral damage.
0: So, like, I what do
1: you think, David?
0: It's hard. This is a hard one for me to answer, just within the context of just this book, right? Um, because I think there's a big question, like, the, there's a big question of Smiley, because I think I think that it's it would be fair to ask if Smiley would do that.
1: Yeah, I I mean that's probably that is and fair.
0: So I I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I I think I think that this is the great unanswered question of the book that because on the the second to the last page, it says that Lemus was determined to keep Liz very close to him as if he was afraid that Munt would not keep his word and somehow snatch her away at the last moment. So I think that Le Carré is absolutely wanting that ambiguity. question, that ambiguity, that threat, that fear to be hovering over the end of the story. And I think that, I think that we're supposed to, I think that, when it happens, that's essentially the question Lemus is asking, like who's responsible for this. Um, you know, that I think that that's, that's the thing that flashes through his head in that final moment. Um, I mean, among other things, I suppose, uh, some of the things we talked about last week. So I don't think it, I mean, ultimately maybe it doesn't really matter who, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I buy the concept that maybe months did it on purpose and that he shot Liz. And, you know, someone mentioned that she was a Jew, that Liz was supposed to die and Lemus was supposed to get away and all that. Um, so I I can buy, I kind of buy that. I don't, uh, the Smiley being involved is perhaps stretched to me because of, but I've read a lot of Smiley. Right. So, you know, that's just from this, the standpoint of this book, that makes it, it's hard for me to say. I'm trying to find any clues in the subtext while I'm talking
2: I'm like Heidi. Did you mention this idea last week?
0: No. To be honest,
1: it's funny that you're saying that because I'm just sitting here thinking. I it never even occurred to me that sh- it wasn't planned. Crazy. Like I. So I. As David's pointing out, he's right. There is ambiguity in this. You can interpret it either way. But I didn't think you could until you said that. Like I really thought that's just the end of the novel. Is she was. Going, she was she was collateral damage and bringing him in from the cold.
0: Trying to figure out, like when they talked, when Liz talked to Mont, leaving when he frees her. Is there some mm-hmm. kind of clue in that section uh, about the way he interacts with her or something?
2: Right, but <laughs> right, we don't have time to. Your case is not Smiley's involvement is not central to your case, correct?
1: Um, I don't know. It might be, um, or controls both sides. Collaboration is essential to my case, I guess, but,
2: but but how far the collaboration extends is up for debate. It's not, it's right.
1: Well, and since, since it's not, Historical fact, like I'll buy that there's ambiguity to it, and that the story would work. I think the story works less well if it's an innocent or if it's not a planned death, though.
0: Well, so why do they climb? Why do they shoot him then?
1: Because they have to at that point. Like he goes back down,
0: and then they wait.
1: Right, they wait, and that is essential to my case. That's probably the main hinge upon which I hang my case. Because why would they not hesitate to kill the spy if they weren't in on it? Like, he's the one they should be rushing to kill, not her, because he's the one escaping over the wall, and it's the Eastern Germans who are shooting him. So, that it, he would be the main victim, unless well, there's some kind of agreement between both sides.
0: Devil's advocate. I mean, it could be they didn't need to see what damage they did the first time they shot.
1: Yeah, but, I mean, that that's just wasted words then, though. Do you know, like, that... It either has yeah. to be they're trying to make an ambiguous point, as you're, as you're suggesting, David, and, and leave it up to the interpretation of the reader, or that's evidence that both sides are in on it.
2: I have to say, my silence over here is the sound of me becoming convinced of your case, Heidi.
1: So, uh, look, look at us, Tim. We resolved our first fight. Are you agreeing with me? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm, totally, I'm totally I think, I think there you is think that the
2: strongest yeah. evidence is um the kind of uh the gap between the shooting of Liz and the shooting of Lemus. I think the other I mean you have multiple strong points. One of the other really strong points is you're right. The beginning of the book is Yeah,
1: it's an it's a chiasm.
2: Like that yeah. yeah. And we've talked over and over on this show that's like it's such a that's not just a powerful literary device. I just think that would not be part of the story if it did not reflect on the end of the story on Liz's death. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. See, I don't, I'm fine. I'm the thing I'm getting stuck on. I'm fine with that. Yeah. That's where the ambiguity to me, I think it makes sense that Munt would try to kill her. Um, I would, I would feel better
1: about it if it was controls voice that Lemus hears on the other side of the wall, but But I, I, so I see your point about Smiley.
0: The thing that I don't, uh, one of the big things about Smiley in a lot of his books is the degree to which you ever really know what he knows. Right. And the degree to which he is, um, kind of flying blind. That's a big, that's just a big theme. That's a big, um, it's a common motif for him. It's something he's constantly experiencing. Um, and so, in some ways, I think you know, if I was control, I'd put Smiley there to to because he's trustworthy. And so, on the one hand, maybe Lemus would say, you know, feel better about the whole thing if you say, oh, well, Smiley's going to be on the other side or something. Um, I don't know. I I buy the the month that Liz died as part of the plan. Um,
2: Your question, David, is Smiley's involvement.
0: Yeah, because I don't think that Smiley would have um, ever agreed under any circumstances that Lemus would get shot at minimum. Right. So, Which is,
1: I think, why they hesitate. They're not supposed to shoot him. They're supposed to let him go. But... Your point about whether or not Smiley's involved in Liz's death is, is is valid. Although he did set her up. I guess you can make the case that he didn't know what he was doing when he went and paid off her bills and all of that kind of thing. But, I mean, she was, that's why he did it, is to...
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that's true. So, thinking- she,
1: yeah, she was always, and she was a communist, and um, so she was always yeah, that's true. a marginalized group that was used as a pawn in this double agent game.
0: Yes. Right. Yes. Um, I think one of the things that the more you read this book, the more you do see the agency to buy, uh, that Smiley has in, in the background mm-hmm. and that's why yes. it's, it's considered a George Smiley novel. <laughs> right. But he's actually oh. quite heroic in a, in a lot of books, you know, and, and, um, I think grapples with the morality of what he's doing more than most spies. Right. Um, and, and he's severely trying- loyal,
1: like always right. loyal.
0: Yeah. Right. Like I would consider him a, a true hero. Hmm. Um, I mean, maybe it's within the context of a spy novel, but <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> um, all right, let's move on for the sake of uh, time. Let's see here. Well, we, we'll ask this one. Uh, Ken asks, was Linus's death a heroic act of love or a selfish act of
2: suicide? I saw that question too. It's a good one. What do you think?
0: Oh, you thumbed, you thumbed that one, thumbed up that one as well.
2: <laughs> what does a thumbs up really mean? What is the meaning of the thumbs up on Facebook? Yeah, does it mean uh, you actually like endorse what's being said, <laughs> or you <laughs> acknowledge it with gratefulness, or does it mean yeah? That's
0: a good even question. the meaning of the thumbs I think up. it's um uh, it's uh, ambiguous, and they want it that way.
2: Yeah.
1: Kind of like the hero bracket, y'all. <laughs> <So>.
2: <laughs> exactly. Thumbs up. The two options we'll are um, a heroic death or a death what what are the other what are the was, two options? Was
0: his death a heroic act of love or a selfish act of suicide?
2: What about what about a <laughs> resigned act of uh, cynicism? I was in. Oh gosh!
1: Rage, rage against the dying of the light.
2: <laughs> yeah, write something like that. It's like a. It's like a resign. It's like a heroic resignation.
1: Yeah, I think that this is the whole question of the novel. I mean, this is what everything is leading toward. This exact question that Ken is asking. And so I think that there's, as David pointed out, multiple interpretations of this act. And there has to be. There, you, we can pick a lane right, and say, this is what I think, and here's my evidence for it. But that is going to remain open-ended. Um, and yeah, I, I think that I would say, because of the title of the novel, I lean more towards option one, the heroic act of love. Because of the title. So but- I there's multiple interpretations.
0: I think that the heroic act of love is an interesting way of phrasing it. I think that if I might phrase it more like it's a heroic act of rejection. Yes. Because I think that he's, he, what he's doing is he's like I said yesterday, he's turning toward the light, right? He's, he's turned, he's rejecting the safety, but you know, chaos. Um, of the other side of the wall. And so he climbs down and maybe he climbs down for her. Uh, Maybe you could say it's an act of love, but it's also an act of like rejection. In that sense, I think that there's, I don't want to say that's redemption, but it's an act of, it's an act of turning away. In some ways you might say it's more of an act of repentance, I suppose, but I don't, I don't want to extrapolate it that far. But I I don't know. The question is, does the question then is, does he love her? I don't even think it matters if he loves her. The question isn't whether he goes to her. The question is what he's leaving behind. Right. Because he's leaving behind life, but he's also, in order to live, he would have had to have lived a certain way, right? So I think I, I think those are kind of those these concepts kind of go hand in hand.
2: But by re, but by climbing down from the wall, it's a heroic act of rejection. I mean,
1: that's, which is pretty yeah. much what you said, Tim. That resigns yeah, different words, like, but
2: yes, yeah, same yeah. idea.
0: Maybe heroic yeah. is not the right word, but
1: it's, it's um, him coming in from the cold. I I do think that that's true. This was the only way he could. Um, this is, I guess the only, as you said, agency, the only way that he could escape.
0: So Krista asks, do you, why do you, she says, was that the only way that he could have come in from the cold? So he's, and you're saying yes.
1: I say yes. Why? To that. Um, because, um, I think within the world of the story, he's already said, oh, I don't know. Now that I'm now, I can see all kinds of holes in what I'm about to say. <laughs> but, um, I still think it's true that uh, he would he saw himself as participating in um, a an unjust and system from which there is no escape. If he goes back over the wall, it's like saying the death of the innocent is just my lot in life. This is who I have to be, and so to die at the side of this woman who represents. You know, the deaths of all the innocent lost in this story was his, you know, his rage raging against the dying of the light his hmm. turning towards a different kind of light like he could never have it any other way. Hmm.
2: Hey, Heidi, for the sake of our listeners, I bet most of them know what you're referring to when you say rage, rage against the dying of the light. But you want to pick up on that?
1: Sure. That's a Dylan Thomas uh, poem about raging against death um, and disorder. Yeah. You know, so that's it's kind written of the
2: father's deathbed, right?
1: Yes, yes, yes. So um yeah, anything the do you want to add? Famous
0: villanelle ever yeah. written.
1: Exactly. And it's great. It's an absolutely marvelous poem, brilliant. But that kind of that motto, the rage rage against the dying of the light, is like don't do not go dental into that good night is the other repeating line. Mm. Um, so he's saying, I'm not gonna go gently back into the darkness of this system now that I know that the innocent are the blood of the innocent is on my hands and I participated and they lied to me. And then I keep thinking about all the times that everybody said to him, What he said, that's so brilliant what he said about um Munt and how he would have known. You know, and I think that's huge to his decision to die here. He said, I would have known if Muntz was a double agent. I would have known. And everyone kept telling him, "You are a proud man, Lemus." Over and over again, they said that, and it turns out that they were right, and mm-hmm. that he had been lied to and duped the whole time. And he just, just couldn't do
0: it anymore. Hmm. Um, let's move on. I know sometimes yeah. these Q and A's can feel a little abrupt, but <clears throat> um, Krista, once again, we have to. I have to. We have to talk about this. It's the last line of the book. She mentioned oh, the, last, man. the last vision Lemus saw she says that it says, or she mentions that it says a small car smashed. Well, as he's falling, he saw the vision of a small car smashed between great lorries and the children waving cheerfully through the window. What are we to make of this? Does the two times he sees this image represent his ability for compassion or is there more to it? And then there's 16 replies to her question on the thread. So, um, (laughs) I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna click on that right now, but, uh, Actually, who am I kidding? I'm going to click on that. But um, <laughs> what do you guys think about this? Let we. I knew this would come up in this week, so I was waiting to talk about that this week. Um,
2: do you I think- would love to pick up the first reference of it. It's in. Is it in twelve? I think
0: twelve sounds right. I should have. I should have noted that.
1: I should dog ear my books, so I could find these things.
0: Well, there's. Um,
1: there's some controversy about that over on the plays the thing, that whether dog earring is an evil act of desecration.
0: Who would ever say that dog earing is an evil act of desecration?
1: Um, Blat Bianco. <laughs>
0: <laughs> His name rhymes with Black Bianco. He's okay with highlighting guy. but not dog earing a page.
1: Yes. So it's been a big conversation. Our listeners who are also following along with the plays the thing know this. Um so. We're not supposed to dog ear. It's it secretes. It means you're a bad guy. It means you're a villain.
0: Mm. Okay, so <laughs> that's fun. I'm going to ignore that. Um, let's see here. I, I
2: found it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Read it to us. It's long. The whole paragraph is long.
0: Uh,
2: uh, where we'll is it. it? Where is it? Um, for me, it's, it begins on the first page of chapter twelve, called East. Uh, he noticed it first. Is how the paragraph begins. Yeah. Okay. okay got it. Yeah, yeah. Um, he drove. I'm going to start like maybe like four sentences in. He drove 70 kilometers in half an hour, weaving between the traffic, taking risks to beat the clock. When a small car, a Fiat, probably nosed its way out of the fast lane, 40 yards ahead of him, Lima stamped on the brake, turning on his headlights full on and sounding his horn. And by the grace of God, he missed it. Missed it by a fraction of a second. As he passed the car, he saw out of the corner of his eye four children in the back waving and laughing and the stupid, frightened face of their father at the wheel. He drove on, cursing, and suddenly it happened. Suddenly his hands were shaking feverishly. His face was burning hot, his heart palpitating wildly. He managed to pull off the road and uh, into a lay-by, scrambled out of the car and stood, breathing heavily, staring at the hurtling stream of giant lorries. He had a vision of the little car among them, pounded and smashed, until there was nothing left, nothing but the frenetic whine of Klaxons and the blue lights flashing and the bodies of children torn like the murdered refugees on the road across the dunes.
1: That's so good. That's like just the perfect
2: objective correlative. And then the final paragraph of the entire book, they seemed to to hesitate. Heidi, nicely done. They seemed to hesitate before firing again. Someone shouted an order, and still no one fired. Golly, Heidi. I'm just really convinced. Sorry. Um, (laughs) Finally, they shot him two or three shots. He stood glaring around him like a blinded bull in the arena. As he fell, Lima saw a small car smash between great lorries and the children waving cheerfully through the window.
0: You didn't... you didn't read the last little bit of that on, on 12 because it says that he never drove again without some corner of his memory recalling wow. the children waving to him from the back of that car and their father grasping the wheel like a farmer at the shafts of a hand plow and in this little line it's a new paragraph, control would call it fever Just This
1: book's ridiculous it's just so good it all ties together
2: what are the possibilities? What are the hermeneutical possibilities <laughs> of that final two sentences of the book? We just lay them out like a like a buffet. And
0: <laughs> you What's interesting about that is, on the surface, he's like um, mixing his metaphors. Yeah, which is how I'm, so. Well, because he uses this bull metaphor, the bull in the arena, and then in one sentence, oh, oh, and then he wow. shifts it to, to the metaphor of the kids in the car or the image of the kids in the car. So, I mean, it's it's interesting that he does that. I'm not. It's it's clearly a choice. I, I'm I'm just fascinated when when people choose to mix a metaphor like that. I just I just find it intriguing. There's obviously you are trying to say multiple things in a small amount of time. Or few words as possible. I was thinking that the bull standing in the bull in the arena, everybody watching you trying to take you down, trying to sort of torture you um, is maybe, maybe that that's what the children feel like in the car, waving, waving through the window. There's sort of a, they're not, there's sort of this sense of not being fully aware of what's about to happen to them and sort of just, being there for the ride
1: <laughs> right so
0: but there's and, a lot of ways you can approach this
1: sure and in in chapter 12 in that long path that long paragraph uh, that tim just read it references also a line of refugees which is an earlier reference to a memory he has of refugees uh heading towards safety and being bombed on the road and they're all mm-hmm. dying mm-hmm. right so we have multiple images of the death of the innocent in the wake of the destructive and careless action of the people in power. Mm-hmm. And I think you're asking for the hermeneutical possibilities. I think there's a lot of them because this is a very, very ambiguous last sentence. And it's, it's one of those, whoa. Um, but that is the overarching image, right? That he is, not going to go back to into the car that's going to smash the children. Mm.
0: What do you make of Control calling it a fever?
1: Oh, that's... I don't know, David. What do you make of it?
0: Tim, what do you you
2: think? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Uh... like we've talked about in the story, control is sort of an, an amoral character. Yes. And I I see the vision as um Lemus trying to make moral sense of this tectonic clash between the East and the West. And being really troubled by it, he can't let this, you know, vision pass. It's clearly kind of like stuck in the craw of his subconscious um, because he cannot make moral sense of it. And I think um, Control's resolution to that sort of problem, which must happen all the time among his spies, is, yeah, this is a fever. This is a... Um, this is a psychosomatic response to a problem that has no solution interesting hmm. Come on, David, I, I bought you some time there you, Well, i've been you, thinking
0: well I've just been thinking about the idea that in the initial scene it's not a vision it's real right right yeah, he almost crashes into this car and he's to, it's when the the, the the concept of consequence like true consequences that those individual people who deal with the consequences seems to to strike him in a very profound way. Maybe intellectually, he had known that before, that that his actions have consequences on individual people. But it seems like in that moment when he almost crashes into the car, that he internalizes in some way that fact. And then here in the end, when he dies and it's all over, that vision comes to mind again. And so I can't help but wonder if that's if it's there's a sort of a sense of closure or peace at play there, that that's not something that's going to that he's done putting people in danger. That as like that there is sort of this cataclysmic crash that happens as he's dying, like that's in in the moment of his death, Um, and that that's the sort of you know he is taking their place. Hmm. Like he, like the, the children would die. Like he's that sacrificial moment, lamb. Well, sort of, I don't know if I would say that per se, but that, but that he has in him dying, he no longer will those children be right because the children,
1: so, the car is smashed, but the children and they're are smiling living. and yes, they're smiling and yeah. cheerfully, not knowing what danger they're in, which is a key part of this image that the children have no idea what danger they were just in when he narrowly misses them.
0: And I yeah. think the, the bull part of it is that it comes, they <laughs> shoot, and then he feels like the bull, and there's some sort of like sacrificial, yeah, uh, thing going on there with a the bull as well. I, and, um, right. I, mean, I haven't thought about exactly what cultures sacrifice bulls, but but,
2: <laughs> but uh, I, I think so. But, I think I mean it's a Spanish bullfight. Surely it's a reference to a Spanish bullfight, which is this yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. ritualistic yeah. ceremonial. I don't know execution after this kind of preordained fight has taken place in the mm. arena. Mm. Then comes the ceremonial conclusion, which is the death of the bull.
0: And the bull never really actually has a chance, right? Like the exactly. more the bull succeeds, Leibus the more never really die. a chance. Right. No matter
1: how strong he is, right? And it's all just for the the being the plaything or the pawn of those in power. Yeah.
0: Okay. Let's, we got to jump. We got to continue here. Yeah. People ask us if we could do two episodes of this. Um, oh dear, there's so many. Uh, here's an interesting one. It kind of shift gears a little bit from the specifics. Esther asks, I know you have discussed this before on the show, but if you have time, could you talk a little bit about the importance of the tragic story in the diet of a reader and how we should try to think about and react to a book that ends with a page full of dead bodies? How can those of us who aren't naturally tuned to the frequency of the tragic story still hear goodness and beauty and truth in stories, uh, goodness and beauty and truth in stories like Spy. How do you each personally go about this? Heidi, what do you think about this?
1: I I think that is such a good question. I I do know that I say that too much just to put that out there, but these say, say questions, what? What? That, that that's a good question. Oh, <laughs> so oh.
2: Oh.
1: I, I do say, I hear, I'll start talking and I hear myself say it, but at that point I'm committed. I've finished my statement. So, um, but that's a really good question. Um, in fact, I have to say this thread of questions are some of the, just the most insightful thought provoking questions I've seen on QA threads. I lo- loved these questions. Um, but I think that tragedy is an essential part of the diet of a reader, um, and I th- I think when you get to the end and um, there is a stage full of dead bodies, um, we ask ourselves the question: um, Has justice been done in this story? And I think that's a really important question to ask in tragedy. Um, Sometimes the answer to that is yes, this was the only conclusion for this particular character. If that, if this character had lived, then uh, the message would have been flawed or that evil can triumph, something like that. You know, you look at Macbeth and if Macbeth stays on the throne of Scotland, it's like a bad story, right? There is a justice in the fact that Macbeth dies. Um but in this story, we're dealing in many cases with the death of the innocent. Um, and that is really hard on our hearts, and it should be. There shouldn't come a point that when we read a story and the innocent die that it doesn't impact us emotionally. But we don't read stories just to coddle our emotions. We read stories to be formed by them. And so uh, when you get to the end of a tragedy and you feel sad, the question is always, why do I feel so sad? Is that a good thing that I feel sad? Should I feel sad? And then kind of trace that with your using what, you know, we often call the moral imagination back to um, the gospel and then let ourselves to be formed uh, by that. Um, So there's nothing wrong with not liking the end of a book or feeling sad about it or feeling angry about it or wanting to throw it across the room. Um, That really just shows that we have consciences And we can follow that in finding, you know, redemption
0: in a story. What about the bit there about how you can be... Can you talk a little bit more specifically about tuning ourselves to hear the goodness and beauty and truth in stories like that?
1: Do you want me to answer
0: that or do you want Tim to take that one? Tim, you want to take that first and then we can go back to Heidi? Oh, man. Say it again, David. So she said, how do you... uh, shoot my screen just for us uh okay she said how do you um to to how do you tune yourself to the frequency of the tragic story to still hear goodness and beauty and truth in a story that's difficult or or or
2: tragic i feel like i'm gonna repeat what heidi said which i'll try to say in a different way truth and goodness and beauty like having our hearts resonate with those things mm-hmm. doesn't mean that we necessarily are happy when our hearts resonate with those things. So, joy is not the only emotion of response to truth and goodness and beauty. Um, you know, sometimes there's longing. Like, in longing is based on an absence. You know, we we, we see in this book that these two clashing political orders are rooted in some way on a fundamental injustice and to try to preserve some sort of moral compass that is pointing to true north. In a situation like that, I think this side of the veil is an impossibility. To do it like with absolute purity, um, And integrity, I think that both sides have to have spies. Spies are, their entire nature is built upon duplicity. To participate in a system that requires duplicity is um, to have, to to require your compass to... be swayed in one way or another. I, I might sound like I'm just saying any sort of participation in any sort of political order is to necessarily sell your soul. I'm not saying that. Mm-hmm. I yeah, just weren't mean you that, a political but, strategist? Yeah, I was. <laughs> I'm not anymore. <laughs> um, but like the kingdoms of this world are are built upon injustice, lack of fairness, duplicity. They just are. I don't mean they're exo- They're only duplicitous no i think there can be truth and goodness um found in characters in this story but the kingdom of god and the kingdom of this world are different kingdoms and to try to hold on to um one's citizenship in the kingdom of god while participating in the kingdom of this world requires an extraordinary amount of intelligence and um moral fortitude. And I think, so for, for me, to try to get back to the question, truth and goodness and beauty for a Christian are always viewed as pilgrims along the way. They're never viewed as like permanent citizens of the current political order. Right. They're always, we are pilgrims. Right. And we recognize that the world that we live in, it counts, it matters. Good and harm Are done and they're real good and harm. Nevertheless, like our citizenship is not fully here. And uh, these books like this show me how despondent life would be if you could only put your faith in some sort of a political order here. Mm
0: -hmm. So Jill asks a question. That I think is worth bringing up here. Because she mentions that she's been reading the book, Are You Liberal, Conservative, or Confused with Her Son? That book is by Richard Mabry. Maybury makes the point that when we define... This is her talking here. Mabry makes the point that when we define the political spectrum purely in terms of right and left, what well, we end up with are two forms of the same beast, the struggle for power in the form of communism on the extreme left and fascism on the extreme right. We tend to think that the moderate then would be a healthy balance between the two when really the moderate wants to have it both ways in terms of mm. governments so she says is it reading too much into what le carré is saying to view Lemus's situation in something like these terms the extreme fascism of nazi germany produced the opposite extreme reaction of socialism and Lemus is acting on behalf of the moderate british position but in the end he realizes they are all bastards quote it's all a power uh-huh. struggle and the only other option in the end is to stand for humanity this is again still Jill that is to love your neighbor is Le Carre trying to make a political stand? And as an aside, I did not view the ending as a negative or negative or nihilistic, but as positive and human. He wasn't rejecting the system that trapped him, but standing for the good. If you'd rather not get into politics, I get it. Um, so the question is, um, is, you know, is the other, is, is the, I guess, is the question here, is, is what he's trying to say that ultimately the, the question you can do is the, the way to differentiate yourself from those poles is to love your neighbor. That, do you think the book's getting at that?
1: I think that is a, I think that's an aspect of his redemptive act of coming into the, coming in from the cold as he is um, choosing to die next to a particular person, right? That, that there is um, he is attached not just to, you know, I'm using air quotes here, women or humanity, but to Liz, And and in that choice to leave ideology on either side of the wall and ally himself with a particular person to his own death, I think, yes, there is that element of loving your neighbor. Now, he is not a Christian, um, and Lemus is not a Christian. He's not choosing necessarily Christian charity. um, But... It is a statement of humanity. Um, and to the point that she's making, that's really important in this novel. And in any novel, you have multiple levels of interpretation. You have the personal level and then you have the public sphere. And then beyond that, you have questions of universals, good and evil and love and death and all those things that that make us human. And so you can interpret this novel um on anyone you can just talk about the impact on Lemus, you can talk about the representation of the ideologies and the political sphere, and you can also talk about questions of morality and God and goodness and, and all of those things. And um and then and the the novel addresses all of them, but they are still separate spheres that sense. So I'm not. I'm not comfortable with saying he's ma- that he's making that particular political point, but I think that embedded within this novel, the question of the the particular humanity becomes the redemptive act.
2: Mm. Tim, I, do, I agree. I think that the point of this novel is that the kind of like the human element that we see most vividly when Lemus in Lemus and Liz's relationship, I think, is like crucial to this novel Mm -hmm. um i i feel like i want to like i want to first compliment jill that the question is so on point it's such a great um and necessary like question about this book and i think it leads to it, it opens the door to a kind of certain political perspective I used to hear it in my students all the time at Gutenberg and I used to try to fight against it which is the more that you read about how political systems function the more you realize just how how kind of gross they all are you know mm-hmm. and I think this book really puts the grotesque of these political orders into stark relief and it's very very tempting Go the next step and say, "Thus shall I not participate. I will confine my action to um, interpersonal relationships." And I, I'm saying this because I struggle with this myself sometimes. Like I know how corrupt the political order can be, and it's tempting to just say, "I'm just going to do the kind of like neighbor thing." And I think that's a that is a very tempting but false solution because. Um, to even have those kind of personal relationships, to some degree, it requires assent from a political order. In other words, it's, it's much harder to love your neighbor in a political realm in which neighbors are constantly spying on each other in fear. You know, right. So I think we should all be grateful and we should all endorse people who try to be involved in the political realm. And especially if that involvement in the political realm preserves the kind of freedom that allows loving of one's neighbor a, as a possibility. You know, we're kind of, even like, home, we have so many homeschoolers that listen to this podcast, homeschooling is reliant on people going into the public realm and saying, this is something that parents ought to be free to do, you know? It's not the natural state of things. It's easy to kind of posit a natural state of things. Like if we all just believed in the natural state of things, we'd all be homeschooling. We'd all, you know, but there is no, <laughs> gosh, I keep rolling out with these big statements and being like, wait, is this true? Wait, is it true? Before you say it, is it true? <laughs> but I, I, it's tempting to say, it's tempting to kind of like back out of the political sphere if you think that there's a natural order of things that need not be argued for, defended, fought for preserved, extolled, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, wow, this is like a big, long trip saying, beware of the political world. Beware of a total retreat from the political world.
0: Right. <laughs> um, let's go to the next question. Uh, not because, again, not because I want to dismiss anything, but because we have so many good questions. Um, here's one that'll be a little easier to answer. Chandra says she enjoyed this book and appreciates how Close Reads helps her expand what she reads and stretches her to read books she wouldn't ever consider on her own. So what are some other spy novels that you would recommend or that we would recommend, I guess, to transcend genre? Do you guys have any in mind on that? Hey, David, do you have
1: any in mind? <laughs> well, of
0: course. I, yeah, I do. But do you guys have anything?
1: No, I only read what you tell me to read in this genre. So... There's, I, Tim, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the glory on this one.
2: Do you want to say anything, Tim? A book that transcends its genre. A spy I think mean spy books. That oh, yeah. oh 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 oh. I'm sorry. No, David. This is your question. <laughs> no,
0: this, well, this. I don't know.
2: <laughs> okay, I'll answer it then. Fine. Yeah.
0: Okay. So uh, I would read The Perfect Spy or A Perfect Spy and The Little Drummer Girl. By John Le Carre, I would read maybe The Looking Glass War as well, it's the one that comes right before Spy. Um, and if you have time, I would read um, the rest of the. I would read the three books in the Smiley Smiley's People series. Um, that starts with Tinker, Taylor. I mean, those books all are pretty, pretty much like, but like Spy, but mm. longer. Um, I would read Frederick Forsyth's The Day of the Jackal. I would read. um, Joseph Conrad's Secret Agent. I would read, uh, maybe look into some Len Dighton. I would not read James Bond. They do not transcend the genre. Um, I don't even think they're very good. <laughs> uh you could read Charles McCary has a couple books. One's called Secret Lovers, and one's called Tears of Autumn. Tears of Autumn is actually just a kind of um retelling of the story of John Kennedy's assassination. It's kind of a spy story. Um, Those are all pretty good. Oh, and Graham Greene, read Graham Greene, read Confidential Agent, and read Our Man in Havana. Those definitely would be would fit the bill. So that would be how I would answer that question. There's actually quite a few spy novels that transcend the genre. Eric Ambler is great. I don't know that he transcends the spy genre unless you want it to transcend the genre um, in the sense that a lot of them like have a crime uh, mystery feel to them, but if he gets close. Some people consider the greatest spy novel ever written to be a coffin for Demetrios, but I don't know that I would necessarily say that it transcends the genre per se. Okay, that should give people some reading, some ideas. Um, Brandon wants to know which one of you is a mole. It's and Tim. I think the, question, the answer to that question is only a mole asks the question, who is the mole?
2: Nice, <laughs> nice.
0: Um, let's see here. Okay, here's one. Lauren asks, when I first got this book at our library, the librarian who checked it out for me commented that he enjoyed Le Carré and had read the book. Without spoilers, he said he didn't like the ending and felt that there were too many coincidences. So she checked back with him today to get more sincere, uh, to get more advice that she's finished it now. She said she agreed with him about the ending, but we chatted about the tragedy angle and how it seemed necessary. The coincidences he remembered were the fact that Liz was o- not only a communist, but also Jewish. And it seemed like too much convenience for the author to include them both. So uh, what does, why, does this, do you agree that Le Carre, quote, controlled the story too much? I don't know where to, f- quite where to, f- where she's, f- she says she doesn't quite know where she's falling on this. I'm stumbling over questions today. But uh, Tim,
2: you get this one first. Boy, I don't buy that. I saw this question online. I don't buy this You didn't complaint. give it a thumb up? I, I, maybe <laughs> I did, but that doesn't mean that I sent it to the library. You did. Complaint. You
0: gave it a thumb
2: up. <laughs> Again, the meaning of the thumbs up comes into you, question. You probably just thought I... bad. You wanted to give everyone a thumb up. Go on. I don't know. So what, so what do you think? I just don't... I didn't find it... I think part of the reason the book is so successful is because it does not feel prearranged. It it doesn't feel like um, coincidences drive it. Not at all. Now, I don't know that I could defend that. I would have to like, I don't know. I'd have to do some textual work to defend it. But it just didn't didn't seem that way to me. Did it to you guys?
1: No.
0: I mean, I think that's the point. I think that... Yeah. I think it feels controlled because that's what they control. They choose the person who is the communist Jew, you know, like, right. there's a lot that I think that that's part of the plan. Why mm-hmm. that is, I will let you think about, um, but that would be my answer. What is, what do you think, Heidi?
1: Oh, I totally agree. I, I, I think, I mean, he's not writing realism. It's a spy novel. So it's, um, to, it's it's like people who say I won't go see musicals because regular people don't burst out in song. That's not the point of a musical, right? Like so that's Speak it for is your own yes. home. <laughs> Um, well, yes, indeed. <laughs> we do often break out in song from musicals that we know.
0: So. Also, that's like having children is proof that the people in the world do break out in song.
1: Scott and I both started singing Alexander Hamilton at exactly the same moment this morning. So we do break out in song because of musicals. That's but weird. Um, the, the, the question of whether or not there are coincidences is important if you're but it's—I I just don't think that it matters here. I think that's the—the the idea of her being—I'm like sputtering now. Like, so,
0: um, the, just sing it. Just sing it. I know,
1: right? I'm breaking the song. So she is a repre- It's not an allegory. I need to say that right. Of this is not an allegorical novel, but she is. Liz is a representation of marginalized groups. Right? People who are going to be judged. People who are expendable. People who can be shot on the Berlin Wall and nobody will care that is part so so to double her identity as marginalized actually adds to the pathos there and that's way more important than whether or not he really would have met her and she was both of those things and so if you're thinking like a literary person you start to identify those threads within a story and i think that's an important thing to do
0: she's a synecdoche well there you go you don't have to know
1: what synecdoche means though unless you can you explain it
0: yeah, it's a figure of speech in which a part is. I mean, if they'd done Lost Tools of Writing, they'd know. But yeah, exactly. a figure of speech in which a part is made to represent a whole, or vice versa. Yes. So she's yes. she, you know, she's as a character. I mean, it's also just called a character. But she's <laughs> meant to represent what you're saying: marginalized peoples. Um, and because the marginalized peoples are the children in the car who get caught up in things. Yes. Um. Okay. Um. Let's do one or two more because we're gonna we're going long here. Um. Okay. Tim, you actually commented on this question and told Bethany Cohen that it was a fantastic question. She's asked, Tim, since you were imagining Liz and Lemus after the story, if it had ended differently, she has another after the story question. What happens to
2: Munt? 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 Especially if he is the killer of Liz. Um, Goes to confession. (laughs) I was going to say the opposite. He... um, Having narrowly dodged his true identity being revealed has now got greater clout within the East German um, whatever secret police he is a tremendously successful spy for the British while continuing to lose all moral bearings except for the utility of gathering information for the British at the cost of human life, tenderness, and well-being. And he dies wealthy, hidden, and... In like Argentina or... In Argentina. Florida. Being in despair, yet not knowing he's in complete despair.
0: There's the real tragedy. Hmm. Heidi, Jennifer asks this coming on the heels of reading the remains of the day it seems to me there is a similarity between stevens and lemus especially their sense of duty to their superiors and their struggle in finding a place in the world when that time of service was essentially over or when philosophical differences made it impossible they both had a tragic love story in which their sense of duty overshadowed their own personal desires what are your thoughts (laughs) (laughs) yes we just gave heidi Heidi the open-ended question what are your thoughts (laughs) <laughs> well, I think that probably Florida State will make the final four. I don't know. Oh, Apples are delicious, <laughs> particularly when baked in a sugary crust. And oh, that summer pie. can't get no, me I'm fast just,
1: I'm just thinking about pie now in summer. See, oh. I told you. That's what your thoughts Thank are. Thank you. Those are my thoughts. But <laughs> about this particular question, yes, I completely agree. Those are... Um, I mean, I think that those those are really good connections. And I, I think... I'll a lot of 20th century novels deal with this question, right? This, what does, what doesn't, what someone who could have been and lived an ordinary human life, why would you set that aside to pursue a certain vocation that costs you something? And what is the toll that that takes upon your soul? Um, And what does that mean in the context of the society? These are big questions in 20th century literature. And I think we'll see them over and over again. This isn't the last time.
0: Mm. okay final thoughts from either of you on this book anything we didn't get to that you want to comment on? i
1: i want to talk about pie
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay i'm fine with that so Tim, yeah. what's your favorite kind of pie
2: uh it's cherry pie and the topping is whipped cream not ice cream
0: mm. like real I'm whipped jealous. cream or like cool whip
2: no real whipped cream, like the real deal. <laughs> like what, you, is, what is your, you and I, I mean, it. I think this is kind of an authoritative answer. I, I would love to hear kind of what you're, um, I would just love to know if you guys agree with the truth or whether or not your hearts stand in rebellion about the cherry pie answer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> do you mean like how one should eat cherry pie or whether cherry pie is the superiorest of superior pies? The latter. Okay, what's your top four of pies? What's your what if there's like four pie faces on the mountainside? What are you choosing?
1: <laughs> what's your Mount Rushmore of pie?
2: Um, for me, it would be cherry. <laughs> no kidding. In the it George would be,
1: Washington spot.
2: <laughs> right, strawberry rhubarb number two, oh, apple funny. number three, and key lime pie number four.
0: Mm. Heidi, what about you? Who's okay, so, George Washington.
1: Okay. Definitely lemon meringue. I love lemon desserts like a lot. I love my
0: my wife's grandma too.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, but Um, Tim disagrees. So this is our second second
0: one, right? (laughs) I don't think this one's resolvable through this.
1: (laughs) I know. I feel feels really strongly about pie. I feel less strongly about pie than Tim does, but i I also enjoy a cherry pie. So I would definitely I would have that on my Mount Rushmore, but it, it, it wouldn't be George Washington. Um, And I like crumble crust on pie too.
0: Especially on an apple pie.
1: Yes. And then yeah. apple pie with crumble, not with the lattice. Although... I've the get those apples all
0: beautiful. calmly and then it gets into all that crumble.
1: Yes, exactly. And then I like... What's that like Southern pie that everybody has in the South that's so good? It's like sour cream or I don't even oh, buttermilk? know. buttermilk? maybe that's it. Like buttermilk pie?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: There's something I've had in the South. that has like a custard in it. Is that the buttermilk? Yeah, Yeah. buttermilk. I mean, there's
0: lots of custardy ones, but did I I make it? Because I make that all the time.
1: Yeah, you probably did make it. Yeah. Just a bunch of David is a master of pie. So I would recommend being friends with David.
0: (laughs) But I mean, only if you can get pie out of it.
1: Are there other reasons? But that's up there. That's in my Mount Rushmore of reasons. Friends would take it.
0: I mean, I, I'm fine with that to be honest. How many people have like are like, why am I still listening to this? They just listen to a whole. <laughs> you guys both talk about pie, and then they got they're like, why am I still listening to this podcast? I can be. <laughs>
1: Making doing anything pie.
0: else in the world right now, but listening to f- three random people talk about pie. I mean, I guess we're not but, random. They just but had an pecan
1: hour chocolate pecan is also delicious. So um, I have to think about. Pe- that. Oh, that's
0: definitely not without the prettier. chocolate. The pecan part is definitely in in my top with the chocolate. Four.
1: You don't like chocolate?
0: No. Well, no, okay. I, I don't. I'd rather it be like whiskey or pure. Or something. Okay. No, like make it yes. a little boozier. Uh-huh. Next adds like it balances out the sweetness. Uh-huh. Of, of all the custard, sugary stuff in there. <clears throat> but no blueberry pie. Mm. What is yours? Blueberry pie?
1: Well, likes yeah, is different thing? from Mount Rushmore. That's a false dichotomy. I like blueberry pie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> My favorite is synecdoche pie. <laughs>
2: <laughs> hey, can I... I would like to... Before I forget, I have three closing thoughts. Yeah, go, go for it. And they are in, uh, let me order them the right way. First, all this talk of pie, I want to give a shout out to Mercedes Maeta. Mercedes, I've been staying with the Miettas. Mercedes, I, I hope I get her age right, 12, is honestly one of the best cooks that I have ever met. And she has been making virtually all of my meals. So I've been holding class in the morning, and my breakfast will arrive to me v- and Mercedes will have prepared it in the in the I sort of say the breakfast chamber. <laughs> Otherwise, it is the kitchen. One of her younger brothers will deliver, it, and it's like out of this world. She's made most of meals out of this world. So that's number one. Number two, David, do we have? Do we know what comes on close reads after Sense and Sensibility?
0: Um. Yeah, well, I mean, I know what's what's on there now. <laughs> what's on there now? The book coming after that is uh, the Rector of Justin Lewis Ockham. Oh, that's right, that's right. Okay,
2: and, and the then Huckleberry is... Finn.
0: And then Huckleberry Finn. I'm excited
2: about that. Oh, them. that's right. That's right. Do
0: you um, want to? Do, is there one on pie? Like, should we do? one? <laughs> probably so. The
1: life of Pie. That's not really about pie, though. It's a disappointment.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. It's really <laughs> false advertising. We'll go on, Tim. My third comment. Is in light of you know like I'm not going to be on close reads for a little bit after you know this episode, so I guess it's more of a question for you guys. Well you on the network? Badly, how badly will you miss me? Oh, so much. How so, much? But I mean, I I found, um, think I'm looking for kind of a quantifiable amount, like how in
1: in pie
0: Ooh.
2: or yeah.
1: Like in numbers? Two, wait, two out of what?
0: Two out of $8 dollars? I don't, yeah. I don't know. You didn't give us the parameters.
2: <laughs> I guess <laughs> I just wanted you guys to kind of like freeform Listen, expand the fir- them. But the Ted, are you, what?
0: You're a teacher. When you ask a question, you are the one who is determining the parameters by which the person answers the question. So when I ask you, what are your four favorite pies? I'm giving you the scale. I didn't just say, what are your favorite <laughs> pies? I mean, I did. And That's then a I great it. point. I saw, saw, thought better of it. So if it was... Out of 60, then I have to think about all the different things that go into yeah. the scale. Like, can I say yeah. 60? Is it really 60? Is it 58? But then what does that little two there between the 58 and the 60 actually mean? So should I say 59 or would it be actually seem like pandering? And so should I say 50? Like, does that seem a little low? Does 55 seem right? But then if I divide that all by five, it doesn't seem like it's enough.
2: Your points are strong. It's and so I strong. feel like I've learned my lesson. <laughs> the so point let is, give you, we're going to miss you. I'm willing to provide a scale of missing. Are you ready? Yeah. No. Ready. On a scale of one <laughs> to two, how much missing will there be? No, two. I mean, two, the, two definitely two. two. Yeah, Got you let's guys, count
0: one to two. I mean, the other option is we don't miss you at all. I'm We're going
1: to have to miss you because I, you. I'm pretty sure that A, we're still going to be friends, and B, <laughs> I think I'm doing some plays the thing with you. where yeah, I was where just going to, go to say.
0: I think you're going to be talking about Shakespeare with both of us. It's just going to be on a different. Theme. I know.
1: <laughs> it's just going to be a different kind of literary experience, oh, yeah. and we're all going to have the same discussion of pie.
2: Yeah, exactly. I we think did, the question under the question was just me looking for acceptance and love. I think oh, that's what see, was going on. That's
0: right. Do yep. we not? Do, do we not exude that throughout the entirety? <laughs> Show, I mean, like, do we yes, at the know. end of a con conver- at the end of a whole sequence of shows you've done with us, we didn't exude that sort of love and and uh, I feel like friendship. I didn't
1: today. We had two fights. That, well, that a no, point.
2: I think fight- <laughs> fighting is a love language for me. <laughs> Not fighting, but arguing seriously is kind of a love language for me. Yeah, so I hear you. I like it
1: absolutely. I'm with you.
0: <clears throat> well, we probably should end the show that ended a long time ago. <laughs> If you're still with us, why? Congratulations Congratulations on not having anything better to do with your lives. Um, Go back to your (laughs) children or whatever it is that you need to do. But thank you so much for listening. Truly. Thank you for being a part of our our conversation here on the Place of Thing. um, And then on the Close Reads. And then on the Daily Poem. Thank you for being a part of all of that. Being a part of the conversations you're getting over on the... It'd be taking part in the Facebook page and the Instagram page and all that kind of stuff. Um, your questions on Spy Who Came In From The Cold were wonderful as always. Yeah, they were. <laughs> really um, we will be doing The Tempest next on The Place the Thing. As I said, you know we'll be doing Little Bridges next. Adam Andrews will be our guest on that. Don't forget we're taking next week off as we lead into that. But we will continue to do um, Daily Poem. You'll get five of those next week. Uh, so keep tuning into that. Please do leave reviews, comments, make sure you're subscribing to all the podcasts. We really appreciate that. Tell your friends. It goes a long way. Uh, it means a lot to us and helps us continue to do more and more shows. Um, I guess that's it. Heidi and Tim, thanks as always for another great series here on, on Close Reads.
2: Thanks, David. Thanks, you guys.
0: For Heidi, for Tim, for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you in two weeks and happy reading. Oh, oh,